invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to the second chapter of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. What wonderful singing that was, huh? Beautiful. There was a well-known pastor and author who released a wildly popular book entitled I Kissed Dating Goodbye in 1997. This book was a a big part of the so-called purity movement of that time that sought to encourage young people, but most especially Christian teens, to be celibate until marriage. Harris was this sort of understudy of another well-known pastor, C.J. Mahaney. Mahaney took Harris under his wings and and trained him and prepared him to take over Mahaney's megachurch, Covenant Life Church. Harris was pastor there from the early 2000s to about 2015 when he left. The following year after he left, he said that he was reconsidering the content of the book that he wrote of I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Then in 2018, he essentially took back everything that he had written. By July of 2019, Harris announced that he and his wife were separating. Very shortly after that announcement, he announced via Instagram that he was no longer a Christian. He had gone through a process of what we refer to or what many refer to today as deconstruction. This huge announcement sent shockwaves through evangelicalism, and you can imagine why. He was a very prominent figure, wrote many books, spoke at conferences, was the pastor of a very large church. Bart Ehrman is another name who is now grew up a believer, went to school, and is now an agnostic atheist teaching against the inerrancy of Scripture. There was a former member of DC Talk. Remember DC Talk? They wrote a song about being unashamed, about being a Jesus freak. But one of the members, Kevin Max, has decided he's no longer a believer. John Steingard, who was the front man of the popular Christian band Hawk Nelson. Dustin Kensrew, who was at one time the worship leader of the now defamed Mars Hill Church under Mark Driscoll. Rhett and Link, hosts of a popular podcast and YouTube channel. Michael and Lisa Gunger, who were musicians, very well-known musicians in the Christian world. David Bazan, who was also a musician. Audrey Saad, a well-known worship singer. Martin, Marty Sampson, who wrote many songs for Hillsong. Barty Campolo, the son of a well-known pastor, Tony Campolo. Tony Jones, a former pastor, Rob Bell, very well-known pastor, all of these people have the one thing in common, that they have all fallen away from the faith. Well-known, prominent individuals. Many of these names may not ring a bell to you, but you've certainly been affected by their work as they've written many songs or books that have actually been used in many churches around the country. What happened why does this happen? 
why do people wake up one day and they decide, I, I don't believe anymore? Why do they abandon the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints? Or better yet, how do you know whether or not this will ever happen to you? Why do you continue to wake up believing in the Lord Jesus Christ? Why do songs like we just sung resonate with your heart? Why do you still believe? This morning, as we finish out our series on the doctrines of grace, we'll be looking at the final letter in our acrostic of TULIP, which is the letter P, which stands for the perseverance of the saints. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is often referred to as the preservation of the saints. I think those phrases are two sides of the same coin, and that's what we'll spend our time looking at today. But perseverance is speaking to man's responsibility to persevere in the faith, while preservation speaks to God's sovereignty in preserving his own. The doctrine of the perseverance of the faith is, is teaching that those who have believed upon Christ will persevere in belief until the end. Because God will preserve them until the end. Another way to look at this doctrine is to consider our acrostics U, L, and I. That all of those whom the Father elected, unconditional election, for whom the Son bled and died, limited atonement, and all of those whom the Spirit regenerated and brought into saving faith, irresistible grace, all of them will continue in that faith until the last day. That's what we're going to look at in our text today in Philippians and then in many other texts. We're going to examine man's responsibility to persevere and God's sovereignty in preserving his own. Now, as we have been doing, we're not going to do a full thorough exposition on our text. It's really going to serve as a launching point to kind of frame up our time together this morning. So with that in mind, if you would take your Bible and stand with us as we read God's Word. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. This is the Word of the living God. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always believed, so now, I'm sorry, obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's pray. Father, as we come before your word, help us to understand, Lord, that these words are the words of the living God. That these words are authoritative. They are inerrant and inspired. And you have given them to us for the purpose of revealing yourself to us and teaching us of how we ought to walk in a, in a way that honors you, Lord. Father, I confess that this is such a weighty topic and an encouraging one. I pray that you would empower me this morning to be faithful to what your word teaches and that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear great and wonderful truths from your word. And we pray this in your name. Amen. You can be seated. I want to begin by looking at the perseverance of the saints 
or human responsibility, which is going to focus on verse 12. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is an essential text for believers to hear and read and study. It captures the twin truths of, of man's responsibility and, and God's sovereignty. And this is critical for us to hear because in studying and holding to the doctrines of grace, it's so easy to fall into complacency. Well, if God is that sovereign and God has unconditionally elected me and Christ has spilled His blood for me and the Spirit drew me in, then it stands to reason that I need only enjoy the rest of my life and He will carry me on home one day. We know that's not the truth, do we? The doctrines of grace, correctly understood and applied, lead us to understand I have a great responsibility in this. And also, God is sovereign. God is sovereign to bring me home. And I must strive to make it home. It's both. These are twin truths. They are not contradictory. They are complementary. These are the doctrines of grace that I pray that we will hold to. I want to consider a bit of context here, just a really small bit. Earlier in chapter 2, from verses 1 through 11, Paul is exhorting them on Christian living, namely to have the mind of Christ among them, and he explains what that means. It is to have the servant-like mentality, pardon me, of, of Jesus Christ who obeyed until the very last day, all the way until death. Have this mind among you, Christ obeyed until death. And he explains what that looks like, mainly in service and serving other one, others. Not thinking of your own matters or your own personal concerns, but also thinking of the concerns of others. And then in verse 9, he explains that because Christ obeyed until death, he was faithful in obedience until death, that God has exalted him to the right hand of the Father. He's given him a name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. But he says, therefore, God has exalted him. Because Christ obeyed until death, God has exalted him. So we have a, a bit of a promise that Paul is anchoring his exhortation in verse 12 in. It's the first pillar is that your obedience is propped up by the example of Christ, but also the same promise for you, that if, if you are obedient until death, that God will exalt you. We have a wonderful promise in the Christian faith. But it's also really interesting that Paul says, therefore, as you have always believed, he's commending them, you have always believed, you've been doing this, but I'm no longer there among you. So continue believing. You see that as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence I was there with you, but much more in my absence, I'm not there with you anymore. But now what do you need to do? You need to work out your own salvation. It's as though he is saying, your own salvation. I cannot do it for you. 
It is your own salvation. You must take it upon yourself to wake up day in, day out, working out this salvation. I'm not there. I can't do it for you. Why is he saying this? You've heard the old adage, while the cat's away, the mice will play. And that's a, in a way, that's what Paul has in mind here. I'm not there anymore. There's no longer the supervision of the apostle Paul watching over my soul. I'm now personally responsible to watch over my soul. While the cat's away, the mice must continue on believing. They must obey all the more now that Paul is not there. In the original, the phrase work out means to accomplish or to bring about, to produce. It's the same word that is often translated as produce in the New Testament. So it might seem that he's saying, produce your own salvation in fear and trembling. And we would be tempted to think that Paul, is Paul talking about a works-based salvation here? I need to produce my own salvation? I need to work out my own salvation? I need to save myself? Is, is that what Paul is saying? Well, of course, we know that's not the case. One of the most fundamental um, things for you to know when you study the Bible is that the Bible interprets the Bible. We don't just isolate one text and build a whole theology on it. We allow the scriptures, all of the scriptures, to bear in on this one text that we are studying. Well, what does that mean? That if we continue reading in Philippians 3, verse 9, he'll say that Paul wants to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of his own, but the righteousness of Christ. Paul understands very well, and you've read Romans, you know that he understands very well, we cannot save ourselves, we are not righteous on our own, we must have the righteousness of Christ. So then what does Paul mean? He's referring to the process of sanctification. Our justification, which is our legal right standing before God, it is entirely based on the righteousness of Christ being imputed to us by faith in Him. We do nothing there. Christ did the work. He bore our sin. He fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. However, our sanctification, which is our process of growing in godliness or growing in Christ-likeness, our sanctification involves work on our part. And I do mean work. The verb tense that Paul uses here is present, work out. In other words, be working out your own salvation. It's not a one-time affair. It is a day in, day out, every single day. Be working out your own salvation. And again, your own salvation. Not your friends, not your children's, not that person in church, not that person at work, where you pay more attention to their failings and their shortcomings than you do your own, but work out your own salvation, knowing that one day you personally 
will stand before the living God. And you can't say, well, that other person wasn't listening or, well, this other person was supposed to help me. It's going to be entirely on you. What did you do with your life? Did you believe in the Son? Did you grow in Christ's likeness? Did you produce fruit? Working out your salvation with fear and trembling means not flippantly, but reverently understanding that you are accountable to the Most High God. Working out your salvation with fear and trembling is what the perseverance of the saints looks like. Okay, but, but how do we do that? That might sound ambiguous. How, how, do we, how do we do this? Well, it would certainly include verses 1 through 11, having this mind among you, the mind that was in, that's yours in Christ Jesus, It certainly would include that, but I want to focus in on just three practical ways that we are to persevere. Three practical ways that perseverance manifests in our lives, and that is seen in our persevering in sanctification, number one. Our persevering in sanctification. Man has responsibility to persevere in sanctification. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. You see that. You're under grace, so work really hard. We think that working really hard at our salvation is legalistic. And that's what religious people do. And that's what you do under the law. We're under grace now. But here Paul presents in Romans 6, you're under grace. So work really hard at your salvation, at your sanctification. Paul is making that, the argument there in that chapter that just because we're under grace, that does not give us the license to sin or to be complacent. Instead, we're to fight all the more diligently against our sin, putting it to death by the power of the Spirit. It's a clear command for Christians and an ongoing process that we must persevere in. We have been set free from the bondage of sin. Now, we must be careful to not present ourselves to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, becoming slaves once again to the sin that Christ freed us from. Do you see? It's, it's both. Galatians 6, 9. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Could any text teach more clearly that we must not give up in doing good. We will reap if we don't give up. Don't grow weary in doing good. Why do you think Paul is saying that? Because it's so easy to grow weary in doing good. It's the easiest thing in the world to grow weary of doing good. 
Sometimes you feel like you want to quit. Why bother? Why keep on? Why keep killing my sin when God doesn't seem to be helping me or blessing me for my efforts? Why hold my tongue with that person when they don't hold their tongue with me? I'll just start treating people the way that they treat me. After all, no one appreciates me. No one congratulates me. No No one's offering me awards and medals every time I walk through the door. So I'm going to give up. I'm going to grow weary. In those moments, the temptation is so strong to punt on your responsibility to walk and grow in godliness. But one of the ways that we work out our own salvation is by persevering in sanctification. We keep on even when it hurts And it's incredibly difficult, which, guess what, is always. The flesh does not die easy. This doesn't mean, though, that we never sin. Christians, believers, real believers who will be in heaven can fail miserably and commit great, grievous sins. But what it does mean is that we will never completely fall away. That at some point, we will repent and turn. We will come back to the faith. We will continue on in perseverance. Those who profess the name Christian without persevering in sanctification, they prove themselves to have never truly been a believer. John writes, they went out from us, for they were never of us. You see, no one actually falls from the faith. People only prove to have never been in the faith. A second way that we work out our salvation is we persevere through suffering. We visited this topic theme many times throughout 1 Peter, but consider Romans 5, 3 through 4. Write this down. Romans 5, 3 and 4. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Don't you just love how counter-cultural the Bible is? We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. What? Character produces hope? Suffering is perhaps the most efficient means of producing fruit in the life of the believer. We grow in endurance, in character, and in hope by persevering in suffering. Suffering in the life of the believer is not a cause for them to fall away from the faith, but we actually are strengthened in the faith. We covered this at length again in 1 Peter, but I want to remind you of 1 Peter 1, 6, and 7. He says, in this you rejoice, there it is again, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that... The tested genuineness of your faith. More precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory. The tested faith of the believer comes forth from the flames of affliction more valuable than gold. This isn't hyperbole, folks. He means it is better to have a tested faith than gold. It is better, because what does it profit a man to gain the world and lose his soul? 
the tested faith of the believer. Persevering through a trial of whatever kind without losing your faith is evidence that you have genuine faith. Sadly, suffering is so often the cause of of many people falling away. In fact, Bart Ehrman, who I referenced earlier, he said as part of his deconstruction that it was watching suffering in the world that caused him to say, a good God would never allow suffering. But that's the opposite of the truth, isn't it? The question is not how can a good God allow so much suffering. That's what lost people ask. The reality is that because God is good and loving, He does not spare His children from suffering. Third, we also persevere in believing. Hebrews 3.12 Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you Listen, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. These warnings in Scripture, friends, are not to be taken lightly. We don't read them and say that's for someone else. The author of Hebrews said, brothers, he's talking to the people in the church Be careful, lest there be found in you, Flatland Bible Church, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. It is possible to profess faith in Jesus, to sing songs about Him, to attend church faithfully, to give, to serve on committees, to even lead a church, and to not truly believe in Jesus. I believe that God uses these warnings in Scripture to cause His saints to persevere in faith through suffering and in sanctification. Because we hear something like that out of Hebrews and and we ought to think, hold on, let me make that personal. If if I stop believing in Christ, if, if if there was found an evil, unbelieving heart in me, I too will perish eternally. I too will be shown to have never been a believer. Do you think that way about your faith? That that means me too. I must persevere. These warnings cause us to have a holy dread that we do not want that to happen. And I want you to really feel the weight of that this morning. That when you hear the phrase, once saved, always saved, That you don't think, okay, it doesn't really matter, I'm good. I can be, I can take it easy, I can be a little complacent, I can not take certain things all that seriously, and God's going to see me home, because once saved, always saved. No, we ought to hear that and say, because I'm saved, I must work at my salvation. I have to work at it, I have to work this out. Some think that they can live as a child of hell and still call themselves a child of God. May it never be. We must feel the weight of the commands that God gives us. We must stand before Him in fear and trembling, realizing that God is not a respecter of persons. What I sow, I will reap. If I only sow to the flesh, God promises, I will reap destruction. That's a promise. Consider Peter and Judas. 
are perhaps the best example of this. Peter and Judas, both of them were disciples. Judas was even on the finance committee, wasn't he? Both of them heard the most sound teaching from the most sound teacher to ever walk the planet. They witnessed miracles. They sat with Jesus. They prayed with Him. They both sinned grievously. Both Peter and Judas. Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, if you acknowledge me before men, I'll acknowledge you before the Father. But if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before the Father. And what did Peter do? He denied the Son. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. The scriptures say that he went out and wept bitterly when he realized what he had done. Do you think that that came back to the forefront of Peter's mind? Oh, what have I done? He said, if I deny him, he'll deny me. Am I no longer in the faith? Have I proven to be a son of perdition? Why did I do this? I wonder if you've ever been there. And you've ever sinned grievously. And you regret it. And it eats you alive. And you wonder, am I even saved at all? How could someone who's saved do this? And you have wept bitterly. Are you a Peter or a Judas? Because Judas proved to have never been in the faith. But Peter eventually repented, and went on to persevere in the faith. I've said this before. The voice of God always tells you, come. But it's the voice of Satan that always says, run, after you've sinned. Which voice do you listen to? As we feel that weight, the question must arise in our mind, what if I do fall away? What if I haven't truly believed? What if I do wake up tomorrow and I don't believe in Jesus anymore? What if this sin I've been struggling with does eat me alive and it proves me to have never been a believer? This is where the other side of the coin comes into play. The preservation of the saints. Verse 13, if you're still in Philippians 2. For, because it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Persevere in sanctification through suffering and in belief for or because God is working in you. The word behind works here is energeo. That sounds a lot like energy. One lexicon describes this word as meaning to effectually work. It is often used in the New Testament to refer to the work of God, not just God doing something, not just general activity of God, but God accomplishing what he set out to do. It's the same word in Ephesians chapter 1, that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Paul is saying that you can work out your own salvation, not because you're smart or religious or such a diligent worker, 
but because God is giving you the ability and the desire to do what pleases Him. That God is giving you the can-do and the want-to. It's one thing to want to do something without having the ability. It's one thing to be able to do something without having the desire. But God's giving you both. You want to do this now, and you can because God is at work in you. You can work out your salvation because God works in you. Behind your perseverance is God preserving you. Behind you doing what pleases God is God empowering you. Now the same way that we looked at three practical ways that this manifests itself in perseverance, I want to look at the same thing in preservation, that God preserves us in sanctification. You know Romans 8.29, don't you? Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined, to be conformed to the image of His Son. Do you understand that God has not only predestined you unto salvation, but also unto sanctification? God has predestined this in eternity past. Just as your salvation was secured, your sanctification was secured. Just as you becoming a child of God was secured, you growing in Christ's likeness was guaranteed before the world was ever created. So then, do you know why it now bothers you to say, do, think, and act the things that you used to do and have no problem with, and it bothers you now, and you don't really know why it's just different and things are new? Another way of saying it, is do you know why you now love the righteousness you hated and hate the sin you loved? It's because God works in you to give you the will and the desire to please Him. It's because God predestined you to sanctification. So then, if God predestined you unto salvation, and here you are saved, and it didn't matter what you had done, the mess that you had made in your life, and you're still saved, He's also predestined you unto sanctification. So it doesn't matter how many times you've messed up. It matters. You, you, you know it matters. It matters to not sin. It matters to be holy. But it does not thwart God's purpose in your life to sanctify you, to make you more like His Son, to one day be totally conformed to the image of His Son. Well, how? If I fail so often, if I'm so terrible at being a Christian, if I'm constantly messing up and sinning again, how does God do this? Jeremiah 32, 40. I will make with them an everlasting covenant. An everlasting covenant. God says that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts. Why? That they may not turn from me. Why do you not turn from God? Because God has put His fear, the fear of Him, in your heart. And it's keeping you. Ezekiel 36, 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The Holy Spirit is given to you 
to sanctify you, giving you the fear of God and causing you to walk in God's ways. God has guaranteed your sanctification. Secondly, He preserves us through suffering. We've already said, referred back to 1 Peter, so 1 Peter 1.5, that we, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In a letter written to suffering believers, at the very beginning, Peter is reminding them, by God's power, through faith. It is God's power that's guarding you. It's not just your faith. It is God's power that's guarding you and keeping you. Does this eliminate their need to persevere? Well, of course not. You remember quite well how many times Peter calls us to press on in godliness. But what it does do is give us the assurance that God has not left us to our own devices. God does not leave his children in the hour of their greatest need. He doesn't send them out on the boat into a stormy sea without being right there with them. He's there. He's there with you through troubled waters, ensuring that you will be kept until the end. And in doing these things, He preserves us in believing. Hebrews 12.2 calls Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith. Other translations say that he is the author and finisher of our faith. It means that God doesn't gift someone with faith only to leave open the possibility that you can lose it. He doesn't give you faith to believe and then say, okay, kiddo, figure it out. Good luck. I'll, I'll be in heaven. I hope you make it there. That's not what happens. He gives you the faith and he keeps your faith and he finishes your faith. Philippians 1.6, I love this. When you are failing miserably, call this to mind. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Has Christ begun a good work in you? Has this happened in you this morning? Do you have a new work going on in your heart where you now are hating the sin you once loved and loving the righteousness you once hated? Do you believe in Jesus, the only Son of God who died and rose again for your sins? Then, my friend, even after you sin, remember, run back to God, repent, turn from it. And be reminded, he will finish the work. But that means that there is work yet to be done. That we're not there yet. None among us. We asked the question earlier, why do you keep believing? Why did you wake up this morning still believing in Jesus? And it's because God himself is seeing to it that he finishes the work that he started in you. Rest assured that if the good work has begun, though the effects of living in a fallen world and a fallen body are many, though our failings and sins are many, God will finish what He started in you. I want to really quickly use, look at just a few means that God uses to accomplish this. 
It's not just some mystical, magical thing that happens. God uses very practical means. Number one, he uses the warnings and commands that we've been looking at. Since the fear of God is in your heart, since his spirit is in you, causing you to walk in his ways, you hear the commands of scripture and you understand, I have to do that. I have the fear of God in my heart. I need to do this. I need to apply it to my life. But he also uses the promises of a future glory. I told you that was one of the things that was propping up Paul's command to obedience here. Because he's saying, if, if you obey, you will be exalted. Those who humble themselves under the mighty hand of God will be exalted. There is a future glory, friends, for you and I. There is a crown of life. There are treasures that you and I can store up in heaven. There are rewards that we will receive. There is a future glory. And whenever you have the Spirit of God within you, you hear those promises and that you lay hold of them in your heart and you cherish them in the midst of battling against sanctification, battling in the midst of suffering, and you hold fast to that until the last day. But he also uses Christian community, doesn't he? So many times, I think that people think pastors like to talk about church membership because they just want to have a lot of people in their church. Well, sure, that's probably the case for many But most importantly, it's because Hebrews chapter 10 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near, that's what the Christian community is. The day is drawing near. We are nearer now to the return of Christ than they were when this book was written. So as the day draws nearer, we gather together and we prepare ourselves. The way that you prepare for the last day is by gathering with the saints on the Lord's day. And you gather and you encourage each other and you hold each other accountable. This is why we believe in church, meaningful church membership. It's not just saying, this is the church I go to. It's saying, these are the people I am given to. These are the people that can hold me accountable who are to stir me up to love and good works because it's discouraging sometimes because the sin in my life I give into sometimes and I need it. So when you hear pastors talking about the importance of church membership, first and foremost, it's for your own good. It's for your own good. Rest assured, you will not grow And be as strong on your own as you will in community with other believers. That's how God designed it. He made it that way. And so, when someone is trying to stir you up to love and good works, before getting offended, I challenge you to think of it as God's way of preserving you until the end. He also uses church discipline. Matthew 18 teaches us of church discipline. The purpose of church discipline is not to kick people out of the church. It's to keep brothers and sisters in the church. It's to call people to repentance and bring them back from straying and from running and from living in sin. That's the hope in church discipline. And in that way, if you're a believer 
and you are living in this egregious sin, and you're going through the process of church discipline, Lord willing, you repent of that. And in so, God has caused you to persevere. He has preserved you by putting you under discipline with other believers. But also the Spirit intercedes for us. Romans 8.26 that The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us. We don't know what to pray for as we ought. We don't even know what to pray for as we ought to. It's not saying we don't know how to pray. It's we don't know how to pray for the right things. But the Spirit, even in our shortcomings, He prays perfectly according to God's will for us. And the Spirit's prayers will be answered. Could there be anything more comforting than this? Well, let's try. How about Christ intercedes for us? Hebrews 7.25 that He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Robert Murray McShane said, quote, If I can hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. End quote. Do you ever think about this? That Christ Jesus, the one who has been given a name above every other name, the one seated at the right hand of the Father, he's praying for you. Do you know ultimately why Peter repented and why Judas didn't? Because Jesus told Peter, Satan has to sift you, but I have prayed for you that your faith not fail. Peter sinned and fell egregiously. But Jesus prayed that his faith wouldn't fall apart. You're going to sin, Peter. You're going to weep bitterly. And you're going to hate it. But I've prayed that you wouldn't fall away. Ultimately, that's why Judas was lost and why Jude, Peter persevered. And so it is with you. He's praying that your faith not fail. It's as if Every time you sin, every time you fail, the son looks at the father and says, Father, forgive them again. And the father looks upon the son, pleased, because he shed his blood for you, and his sacrifice was perfect, and his righteousness is perfect. And he looks at his son, pleased, and says, they're forgiven. Father, forgive them again. They're forgiven. Father, forgive them again. They're forgiven. Mercy and grace abounds for those who are Christ's because he prays for you. Because he doesn't want you to fall away. Why? John 10, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Are you kidding me? Could you be any more safe? You're in the hands of the Son, in the hands of the Father. No one can snatch you out of His hands, not even you. You can't jump out. 
You can't wiggle out. You are secure because you are the love gift of the Father to the Son. Believer, you cannot fall away from God for the Godhead is set on bringing you safely home. This is why Paul so confidently proclaims at the end of Romans, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, Cherish that. When you are struggling, when life is beating you down, when you have fallen yet again, call this to mind. So the question is, have you come to know this love? Are you in the hands of Christ Jesus this morning? Or is all of this foreign to you? And you've never truly repented and believed upon Christ. I want you to... I want to urge you today to do that today. Perhaps the Spirit of God is opening your eyes for the first time and you're now beginning to realize your own depravity and need for a Savior. Let me tell you, Jesus is that Savior. He came into the world to save sinners. That means people like you and me. He bore the wrath of His people on the cross, died, and was resurrected on the third day and He reigns in heaven to this very day. And the Scriptures promise if you call upon him and believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead, that you will be saved. And all of these truths that we have talked about today are yours. Let's stand. As we've studied these doctrines of grace over the past several weeks, I hope and pray that you were both challenged, but most importantly, encouraged. Challenged to think biblically and encouraged by the sovereign work of God in undeserving sinners. And I pray that these truths move from the head to the heart, resulting in worship of the one and true God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you and we worship you for your glorious word. These truths are so beautiful. that There's no way we could plumb the depths of them in the short time we are together, or even in our lifetime, Lord. But I pray that you would help us not to just hear this, but to understand it and to apply it and to appropriate it in our hearts. That we would cherish these things. That we would store them up in our hearts so that we might not sin against you. Comfort us, Lord, in our failings. Help us to persevere in sanctification through suffering and in believing for your glory until we see you, Lord. 
We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.